Good morning, everyone. Before we get into our passage for the morning, I want to just take a minute, as usual, to remind uh, remind everyone, in case you've missed the last week or two, in case you're tuning in for the first time online, kind of where we've been uh, over the past couple Sundays, what our trajectory has been. We're in the book of Colossians, uh, and in the book of Colossians for the past two weeks, we have looked at how, how Paul wrote this letter to, to the church in Colossae. Um, uh, because testimony of their love had reached Paul's ears. They had this, this extravagant testimony of their love for the saints, um, that love that was fueled from hope and eternity, hope in, in heaven. And so uh, Paul commends them. He encourages them to continue in those things. But we also read how now they were being tested and they were being tried and they were being tempted to, um, uh, to, to mix other ideas into their faith, into their understanding of, of God. And uh, so Paul writes to, to, um, to warn them and to course correct, to say, hey, you don't need these things. And last week, uh, we looked in, in, in the first chapter in several verses of how Paul lays out the fullness of who Jesus is and, and the, the complete sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. And by implication, the insufficiency of anything else to complete our salvation. And so now that Paul has done that, now that he's laid out who Jesus is um, and, and everything that, that, that he completes in us um, for our righteousness and for our salvation, he's now going to remind and challenge the Colossians to remember what that means for them. Uh, what that means for their identity, for who they are. And this, this term identity, uh, we, we, we toss around a lot. You know, I've, I've grown up in the church. I've, I've had the, the blessing and the privilege to, to, to teach for, for many years. Uh, and, and, and the idea of identity is, is a recurring theme uh, in, in, in a lot of church teaching, and for good reason. But like any other common doctrine, sometimes we can hear that so much that it begins to fall on deaf ears. It begins to lose its weight. It begins to lose its meaning. And so before we can know for sure um, if our identities are in Christ and what it means to have our identities in Christ, we need to establish what we even mean by that term. Identity, right? So I just want to. Uh, this, this this isn't like a a, a Webster's definition. You're not gonna. I doubt you'll find this definition. You might. I don't know. Um, and and the word identity itself, uh, it doesn't. You, you're not gonna find that in scripture. I think there might be a, a paraphrased translation here or there that would adopt that word. But in the original uh, translations of the Hebrew and the Greek, you're not gonna find the word identity in your scriptures, but the idea is definitely, is definitely in there. Um, and so for our purposes this morning, uh, this is just like, again, this is Jonathan's idea, okay? Um, take it or leave it. I hope you like it. Right? But uh, when I talk about identity, when, um, when I say we need a scripture and you know, Paul through scripture calls upon us to find our identity in Christ, what I mean is by identity, the thing which most intimately and definitively defines who you are. 
It defines your values, how you form your value systems, what you base that on, what defines your character and your integrity, what defines your motivations, your motivations in your decision-making, your motivations in your values, what defines your deeply held longings and the things that bring you joy, what defines completeness, all of that, okay, is going to be wrapped up in identity. Um, what, what is it that most intimately and definitively defines who you are? And so Paul writes, and we're going to see in Scripture, that we are called to find all those things, our identity in Christ. That Jesus is the one who defines our values. Jesus is the one who defines our character. Our motivations should be rooted and based in Christ. Our motivations for how we make decisions should be based upon our intimacy with Jesus. And Jesus is our deeply held longing and joy. So all those things, Paul says, needs, needs to be rooted and established in a person of Christ. So when, when we say identity, um, that's one word that encapsulates a whole lot. And before we get into our Colossians text, Paul, uh, Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, that we have an old identity that he calls the old man or the flesh. He uses different terms for it, depending on your translation. And Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, uh, about that old man, um, the old identity that's rooted in sin, rooted in, in the flesh, he says, knowing this, our old man, our old identity was crucified with him, that the body of sin, the body controlled by sin, the body enslaved to sin, that that physical body, so there's no, there's no context here for us to think, oh, it's like a spiritual body. No. Paul's saying that, like, there's a very real death that takes place. The body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if, this is a really big if, if we died with Christ, there's going to be a couple of these if statements this morning. We have these, these grand pictures and these grand ideas of who Jesus is and these amazing things that he says are, are ours because we find ourselves in him. But there's, there's a couple of if statements, okay? And, and in Romans, Paul says, if we died with Christ. We believe that we shall also live with him. He doesn't say um, if we are Christians. And the reason why I make that distinction because that word has come to lose a lot of meaning in our culture. Everyone's a Christian, right? Um, he doesn't say if you believe in God. You can go up and down your neighborhood knocking on doors and ask people, do you believe in God? The vast majority of them will probably say yes. If you ask instead, have you died with Christ? You'll get some strange looks probably, you know. Um, Paul doesn't say if you believe in God, if you're a Christian. Sometimes I, I, I even, and because the, I, you know, I, I, I value that 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 word Christian and what it truly means, but because of what it has come to mean, I'm almost hesitant to claim it. I would rather say I'm in Christ or I have died with Christ. And that is the qualifier, not what you believe, not what your religion is, but has a true death taken place to your old identity. And now um, 
Do you live with them? We believe that we also will live with them. I mentioned a passage last week in 2 Corinthians 5.17 where Paul says something very similar about the old man having passed away. Uh, He says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things, the old man, the old identity have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I love this verse because the idea here, and I think where we get this wrong sometimes, is our, our concept of salvation or our idea in our heads of salvation is that God takes what we are and transforms us into something different, which is close. It makes me think of his old transformer toys. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, and it's like one minute you have a fighter jet, and then you have a dinosaur, and you have it all in the same toy, and it's great. It's like it's two toys in one. Um, and we think that that's how this works, that like one minute we're one thing, and then God takes us, and he kind of twists us around, now we're something different, right? Um, but that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that that old man, that the, the first toy, if I can stretch the metaphor a little bit further, the first toy has been broken, that's been cast out, discarded, dead, and broken, and there's a brand new toy. It's a brand new us. So it's not like God takes the parts of us and that we just transform back and forth like, well, today I'm having a good day. Today I'm in Christ. Uh, today I'm not doing so hot. Today I'm, I'm the old person. I'm, no, 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 no. The old person is dead very, in a very real way. Um, and so it's important that before, before we can take hold of our identity in Christ, before we can take hold of what Paul's going to write in Colossians here about who we are in Christ, we need to understand what, what that means, first of all, that, that, that a death has taken place. Our old identities have to be completely dead before God can make us into something completely new, not not like a, a, a newer, shinier version of what we once were, something new entirely, okay? Um, super important. Uh, and so for the next couple of weeks, so for today and next week, Pastor Brian's going to preach next week. We're going to try to finish, well, we're definitely going to finish chapter one. <laughs> if the Spirit leads, we're also going to finish chapter two. And over the course of the next two weeks, Paul's going to lay out in, in Colossians um, several statements, that relate to our identity in Christ. And I've kind of categorized these in my head. It makes sense to me. Um, uh, four, four possible categories that Paul's statements are going to fall under. Um, one is going to be who the Colossians, and by implication, us as well, who we once were before Christ. So he's like, you know, here's who you used to be. Here's the old man. Here's your old identity before Christ. Um, who the Colossians, and again, us, uh, who we are now in Christ. It's going to be a big difference. All right, those are the two easy ones. And then there's a couple of times where he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna say, here's who you should continue to grow into in Christ. And one of the great mysteries of our salvation is that God says, in Christ, you are holy. And in Christ, I am making you holy, Right? And so there's that dichotomy of we are fully, and yet we are also continuing to become. And it only makes sense in the economy of God, okay? But the, there are going to be these statements where Paul says, here's who you are now, and who's who you need to continue to grow into to conform to the image of Jesus. And then there are going to be several statements where Paul says, here's who you need to reject ever being again instead of Christ, 
Here are the things that are going to draw you away and pull you away and try to bring that old man back to life that has been crucified on the cross with Jesus. Here are the things that threaten to breathe new life into that old sinful body that we have rejected. You need to stay away from those things. Okay, so most of his statements are going to fall under one of those four ideas. And the question that we are challenged to ask ourselves as we go through these verses is, are these the things that define me? Are these the things that define the way I live and the way I process values and what's right and what's wrong and what's true and what's not true? And the thing that I, the, the statement that I always get, not always, but the statement that I often get when, when we preach a sermon or do a Bible study on, on, on holiness or on um, a Christ-like lifestyle, you know, someone will always be like, oh, I guess, I guess God expects me to be perfect, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm not perfect, so I can't do that. And, 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 and we, we intuitively know that God does not expect perfection, right? We intuitively know that that's just an excuse that we throw out there to, um, to shield our own complacency because, because growing closer to Jesus takes, takes sacrifice, and, and so instead of admitting to ourselves that I don't want to sacrifice, we instead throw this false claim upon God that he expects us to be perfect. And there's a difference between being declared holy and being declared perfect. We'll get to that later. God's calling us into deeper and deeper holiness. He knows our frame. He knows that we're just dust. He knows that we will make mistakes. He knows that there are times when we go back to that old man and and we forget who he's made us, and yet he beckons us forward still, and he continues to remind us that he's empowered us for so much more than what we tend to settle for, okay? So let's not come to him with these excuses of, I just can't be perfect, okay? Uh, Jesus told the disciples that they would do greater signs than he did How and why? Because he only did them through intimacy and connection with the Father. And he says, if you have, and you can, you can have. There's nothing hindering you from having that same relationship with the Father that Jesus has. You can do even greater works than these in Christ. Okay? That's a lot of disclaimer to get to our passage. But here we go. So we're going to start in verse 21. And Paul has just finished writing about who Jesus is. He's just finished writing about the work of Jesus in reconciling all things. Again, we read in verse 19, it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to to reconcile all things in himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And then in verse 21, it's like, oh, and that includes you. Jesus is... Jesus has reconciled all things, all the things in the heavens, all things on the earth, everything. Oh, and you too, he says, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has, he has reconciled, even you, he has reconciled in, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless above reproach in his sight. And so we start with a reminder of who we were before Christ, what our former identity in the old man was. He says, you who once were alienated and enemies in your, in, in your mind. Uh, some of us here, and I include myself in this group, so that's why I said us. Um, some of us here have had the, the profound blessing only by the grace of God, not because we're just that 
anything, well, not anything, but because of God's grace, some of us have had the blessing to, to have walked with Jesus for, for a long time. And, 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 and the years that we have been in Christ far outnumber the years that we've been without him. Maybe, maybe you were just raised in, in, in a Christian home, which doesn't automatically save you, but maybe that example and, and, and that testimony of faith in your family took hold of your heart at, at a young age, and, and, and you've you committed yourself to Jesus at a young age and, and not turned back. And so maybe, um, maybe the years you've been with Jesus far outnumber anything you can remember before Jesus. And again, that, that's very similar to my testimony. If that's you, then the challenge that you and I both have is that when you've walked with Jesus for that long, it can feel, and I, I emphasize the word feel, it can feel like we've just always walked with Jesus. And if it feels like that we've just always walked with Jesus, that we've always known him, it can be so easy for us to take for granted the wonderful gift that he has given us in Christ. Because we can't remember what it feels like to be what Paul says here. What does it feel like to be in our own minds an enemy of Jesus? I could not describe that to you. All right, because again, it's something we take for granted. Now, there are people, and maybe this is you in the room, where you know, like you know life without Jesus because you've lived a lot of it. And you know all too well what Jesus has in fact saved you from. And, um, and you're in good company because uh, I often think what was going through Paul's mind when he wrote these words, when he writes, you who were once alienated and enemies of God. And I can imagine Paul thinking as he's writing these words about the times where he would rip Christian families apart because of his hatred for Jesus, or the times when he would stand and watch believers being killed and martyred for their faith. And scripture says lending his approval because of his hatred for Jesus. Paul knows what it feels like to be an enemy of God in his mind all too well. And so maybe for some of you guys in here, like you know, um, you know life without Christ, you know what he saved you from. Um, and, uh, and, and so for, for both of us, regardless of the situation, it is, it's important that we always remember what, what God has saved us from, that, that all of us in, in some way in our own minds, whether we realized it or not, we were enemies of Christ. And, and the longer you've walked with Christ, um, the longer you've enjoyed his blessings, the easier it is to forget. And the easier it is to let religious pride puff us up or religious complacency cause us to forget. And our love for Christ dwindles and our appreciation for Christ dwindles. Paul isn't writing this as like a guilt trip. He's like, now remember, you guys are pretty bad. You should feel bad about that, okay? Paul's not like wagging his finger saying, feel guilty. And, and listen, we're going to say a lot of things this morning where the enemy would, would love to creep in and use God's words um, and manipulate them to, 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 to bring guilt upon God's people. And there's nothing that we're going to read today or talk about today that if you are in Christ should make you feel guilty Okay, I want to make sure that's clear. The enemy would love nothing more than, than to change it into that. Okay, so Paul isn't doing that. He's not saying feel guilty. Um, it reminds me of, um, of, of a parable that Jesus told. 
in Luke chapter 7, verses 41 through 43. A little bit of context before I read. Um, so, so Jesus is at the home of a Pharisee named, named Simon, and, um, and Simon hasn't, he hasn't shown the hospitality that would typically be due a guest. He hasn't given Jesus anything to wash his feet or his hands or whatever. Um, and the woman, a, 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 a woman comes and starts lavishly expressing her love for Jesus by washing his feet. And the implication of Scripture is that she is a, it's not an implication. I mean, the Scripture says that she was a sinful woman, uh, more than likely a prostitute. And when Simon and his other guests see Jesus allowing her to even touch him, they kind of, they, they're puffed up with that religious pride. Because in their minds, they've been walking with God for a long time, and, you know, you wouldn't let her touch you if you knew who she was, Jesus. Um, and then Jesus tells a story, a short one. He says, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50 and when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. So in the story, this guy has got two guys to owe him money. One owes 10 times more than the other. So the difference between owing a person $1,000, which is a lot of money, but you know, maybe manageable, maybe, or $10,000. In my world, that feels insurmountable, you know, um, a huge debt that you just could not repay. Um, and the guy forgives both of them. He says, okay, you owe me 1000 don't worry about it. You owe me 10000 don't even worry about it. Where do you have to be in life where you can say, don't even worry about $10,000? Let's not go there. Anyways, um, Jesus asks, tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Who's going to love the creditor more? Who's going to love the guy who forgave the debts more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. Like, yeah. I mean, who's going to be more excited to be set free from that debt? And he said to him, you have rightly judged. And so um, in context of that woman, he, Jesus acknowledges and, and, and he, he admits, yes, she has much to be forgiven for. But because she understands what she's been forgiven of and been set free from, she loves much. And so, again, Paul's words should not drive us to guilt. They shouldn't drive us to to try harder, uh, his words should drive us to love more deeply, to love as the woman loves, just completely uh, letting ourselves go at the feet of Jesus. All right. So when we remember the old man, when we remember what we've been saved for, let's not give the enemy ammunition against us. Let's, again, let that fuel our love for the Savior. I believe that is what Paul is trying to accomplish here. But enmity or being enemies is a second identifier in that verse that Paul uh, ascribes to us. The first one is a state of alienation. He says, you who once were alienated and enemies. So uh, before enemies, we were alienated. Some translations say separated. And that's what it means to be alienated, to, to be separate from from life and intimacy in Christ. That's what it means. And in New Covenant language, separation is far more severe than it translates into English because in New Covenant language, separation means death, right? We were separated from God before Christ, and Paul says that means that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? And so um, it's not just, oh, we're not close to God. No, you are dead, um, 
by being separated, by being alienated from the life in Christ. You don't even know it. You're like a walking zombie. All right, you're dead without even realizing it. That's part of the reason why Jesus accused the Pharisees over and over again of being whitewashed tombs. So on the outside, you look okay and you might feel okay, but on the inside, there's nothing but death and decay, just like a tomb, right? Um, because separation from God equals death. That's why we read in, uh, in a couple of different places in the New Testament, but in Luke 13, um, Jesus is talking to the people and he says, a lot of you are going are gonna to be surprised on judgment day. You're going to say, Lord, didn't we eat and drink in your presence? Didn't we enjoy fellowship with you? And the Father's going to look at you and say, what, depart from me, for I never knew you. Depart into separation. And the Revelation calls that the second death. Okay, so um, when Paul says you who were once alienated, it's not just, oh, you didn't know God yet. You were already dead and headed for more death in separation from Christ. Now, next week, uh, Pastor Brian's going to get more into that. Paul writes more in chapter 2 about the doctrines of death through sin and life in Christ. I don't want to steal Pastor Brian's thunder. You know, I'm going to let him have that. Suffice it to say for now. Um, that before we can fully appreciate who we are, the total fullness of who we are in Christ, we have to come to terms with who we used to be before Christ, the hopelessness of our state outside of Jesus. Um, And so outside of Jesus, the thing that most defined us, our identity, we were enemies of God and hopelessly separated from him into death. Okay, so... um, the rest of verse 21, yet now, and thank the Lord for that phrase, yet now, that's what you once were, but now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So what identity have we been reconnected to through reconciliation in Christ? What are we now? Because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, Jesus delights, he takes pleasure in presenting us to the Father as holy, blameless, and above reproach in God's eyes. And if we take nothing else from this passage this morning, I pray that we would take hold of how monumental, how life-changing those declarations are over us. Because most of the time, most of the time, I, I don't feel very holy, you know, um, I don't feel like a saint. And then, by the grace of God, he reminds me what, he, what Scripture means by holiness. We often think of holiness just as being a moral perfection, okay? And it is, it, it is that, but it's not just that. And, and without context, that feels more of a burden than it does a gift, God calls you to moral perfection. I can't imagine a more depressing calling if that's where it ends. Okay, but the beauty of how God calls us into moral perfection is that he's already done it for us, and he declares us holy before we could ever earn it because we can't earn it. And here's the trap we get into as believers. We, we, we get it that it is by grace we are saved through faith, and so we, we enter into holiness only by grace, um, we, we, we will say, yeah, I can't earn my salvation. But then we get into this trap of, of somehow believing that we can accomplish our ongoing holiness. 
that we can, through our own strengths and through our own efforts and righteousness, somehow live up to or be worthy of or earn the ongoing blessing of holiness. And if we didn't do anything to, to get there, we certainly cannot keep ourselves there. But the beauty of being in Christ is that God calls us holy anyway. And holiness in Scripture doesn't just describe moral perfection. Um, it describes something or someone that is set apart exclusively for the purpose of the glory of God. It cannot be used for any other purpose other than the glory of God. And God calls us holy. He says, now your purpose in life, now your identity is I'm going to bring about even more glory through your life. Wow. Uh, it brings to mind, um, you know, in, in the Old Testament, when, when God was giving Solomon instructions about the temple, he, he gave him all these, all these instructions about, uh, about what to put in there. And, and, and there were these, these vessels that were made from gold and silver. And these vessels, and you can read about them in, in 1 Chronicles 28, um, they were to be used exclusively for temple worship and for bringing glory to God. And if you remember centuries later when Babylon came and, 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 and conquered Judah and took them into exile, the Babylonians, they, they, they sack the temple, they, they loot the temple, they take all these golden vessels. And then, um, and then the king of Babylon in the book of Daniel chapter 5 they use these vessels to, to worship their gods. They're like, bring out the vessels of gold and silver from the Israelite temple. Let's use those to worship our gods of gold and silver and wood and brass and, and iron and all these things. And as you read in Daniel chapter 5, God does not like that very much. And God shows up in might and power in that moment. And uh, it, it doesn't go, I won't, no, no spoilers. It doesn't go well for the Babylonians. I'll let you guys read that on your own. Um, and so those were holy vessels. They were to be set aside exclusively for the glory of God. Um, and so that is what we are. Um, the picture is, if you can picture this, picture yourself as one of those cups or goblets or bowls or however you picture yourself. Um, but you're not clean and, and shiny on a shelf, you're, you're in a burned down building and you're just deep in, in this, this mud and you're deep in the mire and you've been smeared and you've been corroded and you're, you're, you're this, this, this disgusting vessel that you wouldn't even buy from a goodwill, you know, it's good for nothing but to just be taken to the dump. And then Jesus comes, he lifts you out of the muck and the mire with his own pure white robe, he wipes you clean. He polishes you up. And if that were all he did, that would be enough. But then he says, not only am I going to lift you up out of the muck and mire and polish you and make you look shiny, now I'm going to put in, I'm, I'm going to use you to bring about more glory. I'm going to put the most precious gift in all creation in you and use you to bring about glory. That's what it means to be declared Holy, that now we are set apart for God's glory. Um, and so in 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16, when Peter writes, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Peter isn't saying, hey, you know, God's holy. We all know that. 
and he's called you, so you better do your best to be holy. You know, that is not what Peter is saying. He's saying you will be holy because the one who called you is already holy. And as long as you, again, there's that if, if you are in Christ, then you are already holy. It's already who you are, okay? Um, it is a declaration that we are in the present, in, as, again, in Christ, we are already holy, full stop. God has already set us apart for his glory. In the process of making us holy by his loving kindness, Jesus also declares that we are now blameless and above reproach. He says um, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Um, and so I, one of my favorite verses in scripture is in Romans 8, chapter 1. This is where I was saying earlier that there's no guilt. There's no guilt for those who are in Christ. In Romans 8, chapter Romans chapter 8, verse 1, uh, Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, who do not walk according to the, to the flesh. If you're not walking according to the old man, the old identity, but if you're walking according to the spirit, the new person in Christ, Paul says there's no condemnation. There's no space for guilt. You never, you never stand condemned before the Father as long as you're in the Son. How could you be? Because if truly you are in Christ, then Jesus shares not everything about who he is. We're, never, we're not divine. Okay? Um, but Jesus shares his holiness with us when we are in him. And if the Father could never look at the Son in condemnation, and we are in the Son, how could he ever look upon us with condemnation? And so church, believer, Christian, um, if the enemy plagues you with guilt, if you are constantly um, uh, feeling overburdened because you feel unworthy and you feel guilty and and you feel alienated from God, okay? Um, You are unworthy and you will always be unworthy, okay? Um, But in Christ, you are never guilty. And that's who we are, our identity in Jesus. Um, So... uh, Moving on. I moved too many pages around. I forget what page I'm on. Let me find the page I'm at. Okay, here we go. Um, This is important because the enemy loves to accuse. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, we read, that's what he does. He's the accuser of the saints, right? Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren to accuse them before our God day and night has been cast down. And so again, the enemy, he, he's like a, like, a, like a roaring lion roaming around seeking whom he can devour. He devours by accusing. He devours by deceiving. He devours by making you feel like there's no way you could ever be worthy of that new identity in Christ. You are still that old person and he's lying. Okay, so knowing who you are in Christ is going to be one of the most effective shields against the attacks of the enemy. And finally, in the end of verse 22, um, an above reproach in his sight. That's so important because we, we often don't see ourselves the way God sees us. And it's so important for the, for the person who is in Christ, for our identity, that, um, that we never, we must not ever define ourselves by how we see ourselves or by how others see us. As long as the, the standard is how God sees us, then there is freedom. 
and there is salvation. And so Paul writes, in God's sight, these are the things that are true about you. If you take your perspective away from where God is, then that's when the enemy achieves victory over and over again. Um, So verse 23. If indeed, there's again if, there's that same qualifier, there's the same thing. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, You're not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so some key words here stick out to me about this qualifier, about this if that Paul writes. He says, if you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast. Those two words come together. You can't take one without the other. You're grounded in Christ and you're steadfast on that foundation and you're not moved away. Uh, Other passages, the Greek word for continue is often translated as abide or to remain, okay? Um, and, and how could Paul ever be accused of preaching a works theology? Because what he's saying you have to do is to, like, just stay. <laughs> like, just remain. Like, do you guys have dogs? You know, you tell your dog, stay. Sometimes that's super hard for a dog. And sometimes it's super hard for us, yeah? Uh, and Paul says, all, all you have to do is remain in Christ, Continue in what he's already done for you. To abide means to, to, to make your home in this dwelling place. And, and, and in case we think even that's unfair, that's asking too much, it's similar to what we expect from our spouses, right? We want our spouses to re- not only to like remain our spouse like legally, right? But also, hey, when, when you're walking around and I'm not there, I would appreciate if you lived like we were married. Right? I mean, you know, if, if you could live in such a way so that other people know that we're married, that'd be appreciated. You know? Um, and maybe it's an oversimplification, but I think that's what Paul is saying God would like from us. Hey, when you're out there in the world living life, and maybe you're not thinking about God, or you think he's not watching, it would be nice if we lived as if we were married to, to God, right? As if we truly were in Christ. Paul's saying, remain in these things, continue in them. It's not a work. It doesn't take work. It takes love. If, 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 if I have to guilt myself into living like I'm married to my wife, there are deeper problems there, yes, but if I'm motivated by a love for my wife, then it's going to flow naturally. I'm not going to be perfect. Again, we're all going to make mistakes. But the overall uh, defining and pattern of my life is going to be one motivated by love. It's all God is asking from us. Remain continuing these things. Abide in them. Grounded and steadfast. That has the idea of what is our foundation. What is the underlying principle of your life? The thing that influences every decision you make and every belief and conviction you hold. Jesus needs to be that underlying principle. Right? That's what it means. Grounded and steadfast. Not moved away. In the coming verses, Paul's going to talk about, and he's going to attack directly the human philosophies that would try to move us away from that centering in Jesus, to try and distract us and get us off of that foundation. Um, Verse 24. I now rejoice in my sufferings. Paul says that quite often, more often than I'm comfortable with. Uh, But he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ 
for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul is basically saying that until his suffering for the church is, is equal to the suffering that Jesus experienced, then his suffering is incomplete. So Paul, and, and Paul is likely writing this from prison. I don't have to go through all the things Paul has suffered. We have looked at that before. We, we have some idea already of all the things he has suffered and is suffering. Paul says, until my suffering mirrors the suffering of Jesus for his people, then my suffering is incomplete. And he doesn't say that in a way like to bring, like, like woe is me. You know, he's saying it because he's rejoicing in that. And what would it be like if we had that mentality? Because Jesus says, in this world, you're going to suffer. In this world, you will have trial and tribulation. What if every time that happened, our question was, have I suffered as much as Jesus? Because until then, my suffering is not complete. And, and I think about that joyfully. <laughs> um, it would change the way we live would change the things we complain about. It would change the things we get all up in arms about because our suffering doesn't begin to compete or compare with that of Christ. Uh, but that wasn't the mentality Paul had. Um, the next few verses, you know, the, 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 the Paul's, Paul's perspective on his ministry, Paul's perspective on what Jesus has called him to, uh, deserves its own sermon. You know, he, 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 he speaks about his, his passion and in, 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 in beautiful terms. He says in verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you, the church, to fulfill the word of God. God's called me to this. I'm doing it to fulfill God's word. The mystery which has been hidden from ages from, from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. I'm going to come back to some of these words in a minute. Um, but which is Christ in you, so the, the mystery among, among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. It's important, he says, that he's warning every man and teaching that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his work, uh, which works in me mightily. So again, uh, there's a lot we could unpack there just about Paul's ministry and his calling. Uh, we don't have time to get into that today. Um, so I don't, I don't want you guys to feel like I'm just like brushing over those things, but, uh, but they just deserve their own, their own sermon. Um, what I do want to point out about that is Paul begins to speak about the gospel in terms like the mystery which has been hidden, right? And, and which has now been revealed to his saints. And he, see, he talks about hidden knowledge uh, and the revelation of that knowledge. And then if you look ahead in chapter 2, verse 3, he uses a similar phrase. He says, in whom, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And the reason why he's describing the gospel in these terms is that one of the ideologies, one of the human philosophies that the Colossians were having to contend with, and I mentioned this briefly, so we're going to go into it a little bit, uh, was this philosophy of Gnosticism. Um, and, and Gnosticism is hard to, to define because it's this broad term that kind of covers a lot of ground, and there's all kinds of strands of Gnosticism that have developed throughout the centuries after this. And so um, there's no one, one version that defines all of it, but one of the common strands, one of the common uh, foundations of what Gnosticism means is um, a search for hidden knowledge 
searching for his, like, so, uh, so the Greek for, uh, for knowledge is uh, um, gnosis with a G, like gnosis. So Gnosticism, uh, that's as academic as this gets, okay? Um, but it's the search for hidden knowledge or, or the true divine person. So, so some, some major forms of Gnosticism would paint the Old Testament God, and I'm using quotation marks, all right, uh, the Old Testament God as, as being evil and, and, and being this oppressive force and everything that he created, the physical creation is therefore inherently evil because, you know, look how mean he is, right? Um, and so we are searching for the hidden knowledge of, the, of, of, of a secondary divine person, um, and that's how they would paint Jesus. Um, and, and so the ways that we get this hidden knowledge is by denying the physical, denying the flesh, because that's all evil. So that's where you have a strand of asceticism where you say, I'm going to limit my daily consumption to a grain of rice every day because that's going to draw me closer to God somehow. Or I'm going to deny myself these bodily hungers because somehow that will lead me into deeper knowledge of, of who the real divine person is. And this is these, these crazy heresies, okay? And so Paul is describing the gospel when he says, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. Uh, and then again in chapter 2, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's, he's using those words intentionally to say you guys are being tempted to look for hidden knowledge. You're being tempted to draw closer to God by, by searching for hidden knowledge, but everything hidden about God from ages past to now is revealed in Christ. Everything you're looking for, Jesus has made known. And when you are in Christ, you have all the mysteries. Now, he's been a little, um, he's exaggerating a little bit. There's certainly a lot of things about God that we don't know, right? Um, but when it comes to, ha- to being able to know God, period, to, to know him at all, Paul says that mystery is, is, is laid bare before you. You have full access to the person and the heart of God through Jesus. So I'm going to start in in chapter 2 again. Um, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged. He says, I know you guys have never seen me face to face. I'm still praying for you. My heart uh, is is beating for you, um, that, that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. And remember, he had already commended their love for the saints in chapter 1. And attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul's heart for the Colossian church is that they would have this, this, this assurance. Now, he says, I want you to rest in the full assurance that there's nothing more you need to add. You're, you're not lacking. People are coming in behind me, and, and they're filling you with doubt, and they're filling you with fear that, that you've missed it, that you're, you're not doing enough, that you're not denying yourself enough. And doubt is not from the Lord. And this is Paul saying, that doubt that you're experiencing is not from the Lord. All right, I want you to have full assurance that you have, um, yeah, you have understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God. Verse 4, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, 
rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, continue in him, there it is, remain in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So in those verses, we see that human philosophy, so especially in verse 8, and in verse 4, that this human philosophy is deceitful and it is seeking to cheat them out of the peace and the joy that they have in Christ. And it is deceptive and empty precisely because it tries to add something significant to Jesus as if he is lacking in some way. And as we've already seen last week, how can everything that we believe about Jesus be true and him be lacking in some way? And here's the thing. Um, we don't need just other people coming in trying to deceive us, right? Deception can come from so many places. Scripture says uh, our own hearts are deceitful. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. If we think, like, you know, um, the enemy is called the great deceiver. You know, he's the father of lies. He's been lying from the beginning. It's interesting that Scripture says our own heart is deceitful above all things. If we're to take that literally, that means we make the enemy's job easy sometimes, and our own hearts can be more deceitful than even him, right? Um, so the anyone in verse 4, when Paul says, I don't want anyone to deceive you, that can just as easily be another person. It can be the enemy coming in. It can be our own hearts which constantly wage war against the testimony of the Holy Spirit through Scripture that Jesus truly is all-sufficient for our needs. Um, do you remember in the garden, the deception there was if you truly want to be like God, if you truly want to connect with God, you need more knowledge, right? What was the fruit? The knowledge of good and evil. That was the, the, the first temptation, um, and human philosophy hasn't changed a whole lot since. I remember taking a philosophy class in college. Some of you probably have more experience with it than, than I do. Um, I'm grateful that because I went to a Bible college, that class was, was brought under submission to the authority of God's word. But nevertheless, we were allowed to be exposed to other ideas in human philosophy. And this, this ongoing, constant, desperate search for meaning. What are the, the, the key questions in philosophical thought, right? Who are we? Where do we come from? What are we made of? What are we made for? What's our purpose who will we be one day? These are all the questions that human philosophy tries to answer, tries and fails repeatedly to answer. Okay? Um, and Paul is saying you can, you can chase those rabbit holes as far and as long and as deep as you want to, and you will never come to anything near the sufficiency of Jesus in answering each and every single one of those questions. But how easily we are still deceived into thinking that there must be more to it. There's got to be something more. It cannot be as easy as simply walking with Jesus and loving him with all our hearts, soul, and strength as if that's easy. But sometimes our own hearts are like, no, it can't possibly be just that. And we're led astray into all these other uh, thoughts and pursuits that lead us to nothing but disappointment and destruction. Verse 9. 
For in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Everything about God, Paul says, um, the fullness of the Godhead, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in Christ, the fullness of all of that dwells. And then, if you can wrap your head around that, which I cannot, but if you can come to even a glimpse of what that means, he says, and then you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. If the entirety of the presence and power of all that God is dwells in Christ and we dwell in him, um, it doesn't, again, I want to be careful, it doesn't mean, it doesn't make us like God. Um, but it means that all those things that Jesus inherits by right and by relationship with the Father, he shares with us. He invites us to share in his holiness. He invites us to share in the riches of God's grace and love and glory. The worship team can go ahead and come up. Um, This is our identity. This is what most intimately and definitively defines us. In Christ, in Jesus, if we have died with him on the cross and now we walk and continue with him in life, we are completely consumed by the same fullness of love and the same fullness of presence that God bestows upon his son. Let's pray. Lord, truly you have called us to a high and holy calling and not in the way that that is burdensome, not in a way that... um, that requires much of anything from us, Lord, and we've done nothing to deserve that. Lord, thank you that you have put away from us. You have, you have destroyed and killed um, the version of us that is in bondage to sin and is in bondage to death. Thank you, Lord, that, that by your power and by your love, we are not slaves to that anymore. And thank you that you have not only done that victory, but you've also risen us, you've, you've, you've raised us up into new life in Christ. And now we can walk in holiness. Lord, thank you that when you see us, you don't see our guilt. You don't see anything but your son. What, what a gift. But I pray, I pray that we would remain in that, that all of us, we would remain steadfast in the center of that identity, Lord, so that as we continue to live Lord, we would be assured that as you look upon us, you only see your son and you only see those. We are redeemed, we are reconciled and forgiven. Um, Truly, you are a great God. We thank you this morning and pray again that you would magnify yourself in our hearts. We would carry you with us from this place. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, Please stand as we...